we actually evolved to innovate socially. We evolved to work together and to figure out social solutions to problems, and that's actually our preference. Now, the, the problem is that a social solution can block a technical one. So if you just automatically think about the world in social ways, then you can fail to think about a really obvious technical solution to your problem. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Feedback Loop on Singularity Radio, where we keep you up to date on the latest technological trends and how they're impacting the transformation of consciousness and culture from the individual to society at large. This week, our guest is William Von Hippel, a social psychologist who teaches at the University of Queensland in Australia and author of the 2018 novel, The Social Leap, the new evolutionary science of who we are, where we come from, and what makes us happy. In this work, Von Hippel explores how the challenges of our evolutionary past shaped many of the most fundamental aspects of our behavior in the modern day. In this episode, we rewind all the way back to several million years ago to the moment Von Hippel calls the social leap and work our way quickly to the present day. And along the way, we touch heavily on many topics, including, but certainly not limited to, the evolutionary mismatch we have with our modern environment, why humans innovate the way we do, and different leadership styles that are rooted in the evolutionary responses to hierarchy. Von Hippel's passion and remarkable ability to explain this complex subject matter make for an information-packed and yet entertaining episode. So if you like what you hear, be sure to check out the episode description for a link to his book. And finally, if you want to suggest a guest, ask them questions of your own, or even potentially be a guest on the podcast yourself, be sure to go to su.org slash podcast and explore your options for membership within the Singularity community. But for now, let's jump into this conversation. Everyone, please welcome to the Feedback Loop, William Von Hippel. Could you tell us a little bit about you know, what motivated you to write this book and what motivated you to do the research you've been doing for the last uh, few decades, it sounds like. Yeah. So yeah, I started, I became a social psychologist a little over 30 years ago. And what that means is that I study how people interact in their everyday lives, what makes you more or less persuadable, what causes you to hold stereotypes, um, what influences your self-esteem, the kind of standard everyday stuff that, that people's lives involve. And as I was doing that work, it started to become increasingly clear to me that we were only answering half the question. And so the answers that we typically provide are, well, people do that because it makes them happier, or they do that because it raises their self-esteem. But we weren't asking, well, why does it make them happier? Why does it raise their self-esteem? And so in order to start looking at that question, I started looking into our past and saying, well, how did we evolve? How did we get to be where we are? And what were the forces that shaped us in the past? Because they should influence what makes us happy, what makes us angry, because that'll, those emotions are there for a reason, right? They evolve to serve a purpose. And so I started taking an increasingly deep dive into our ancestral past until I eventually realized that there was this book that I wanted to write where basically it's linking together social psychology and this evolutionary history. Lots of us do this kind of work, but I, in particular, I wanted to look at the last 6 million years and some of the key events that had happened in our evolutionary past and the sort of signatures or consequences of those events going forward. And what were some of the things that you found that like really stood out to you? What was the moment you realized, 
oh wow okay i have something here that is a true turning point in, in our ancestral history that explains maybe some of these uh imperatives or driving forces for our behavior well the the key one that strikes me and, and of course we don't know exactly when it happened i have a hypothesis about when it happened and i talk about that a, a fair bit and i'm happy to go through why i think it is but i think that it was around three to three and a half million years ago was the key inflection point in our ancestral history and basically prior to that so we split apart from our chimp cousins maybe six or seven million years ago and i can talk about why if you'd like and then you we kind of skulking around the edges of savannah. It's a dangerous place for us. We're evolved to live in trees. We're not evolved to be on the ground. And, and so we're, we're nowhere near the, the ascendant position we'd held in the rainforest. But then by about three, three and a half million years ago, now we're bipedal. And that bipedalism has changed our body in a way that introduces a new way to protect ourselves. And that new way to protect yourself is by throwing stones. Now that might not seem like a big deal, but the single most important invention in military history is the capacity to kill at a distance. And until you, and no other animal can do that, not a real distance, you know, some things can spit a little bit of poison, but not really at a distance. And so once we became bipedal and our bodies became more oriented laterally rather than vertically to go up and down trees, suddenly we had the capacity to throw in a way that we had never been able to before. Chimpanzees can throw, but they do so very poorly. They can't aim very well. They typically use two hands and are overhand. But once we gain this lateral orientation in the environment, a longer hips and waist due to our bipedalism and lateral structure in our muscles due to the fact that we're not going up and down trees all day, now we can throw in the way that really expert throwers do, which generates an enormous amount of elastic energy through the ligaments, tendons, and muscles in your body. And so the end of a human throwing motion is like the snapping of a rubber band. So now, suddenly we have the capacity to protect ourselves in the savannah when previously we were just food and when something came along we just scattered and and that changed everything it changed our orientation to each other and it changed our orientation to the environment that we lived in so for me that's probably the the single most important inflection point and how did that inflection point then kind of translate into what would be that's the social side of things how does that uh, upright posture the throwing um, moving on the savannah, that ascension of the of the hierarchy of the food chain, how does that begin to shift us into a place where our social aspects come to kind of set us apart from other animals? Yeah, that's the key question, right? And so the if you look at Australopithecines, which is where I believe it happened, now I could easily be off by a million years in either direction, but I think around three million years ago is where this happened. The um, what you see is an, an, is an animal that had evolved away from chimpanzees to that point where it's bipedal, but probably, we don't know, but probably its psychology was quite chimp-like. And if we look at our best guess of what a chimp-like psychology would have looked like then is to look like what it looks like now, because of course they live in much the same environment and they're fundamentally competitive with each other. They will cooperate on occasion when um, they wanna hunt monkeys or things like that, but they don't work together in any fundamental way and they don't want to work together in any fundamental way. But once you gain the capacity to throw, and, and you're, you know, Australopithecus is probably four, four and a half feet tall. They're not a, a, a huge animal. Um, but once they gain the capacity to throw, well, they could do harm to an animal that's trying to attack them before that animal can get to them, but they can't do any real harm unless they work together. They're simply not big enough and strong enough. But if you've got a bunch of Australopithecines together, and now they're being attacked by a lion or a leopard or even a saber-toothed um, cat, which lived on the savannah during that time, if a bunch of them band together and all throw at once, well, for the first time in our evolutionary line, they're safer if they work together than if they just scatter and hope for the best. 
So imagine, you know, a lion comes upon a group of Australopithecines. If they all scatter for the trees, well, let's say there's 30 in the group, you've got a 29 and 30 chance of making it, right? Because the, the lion's faster than all of you, but it's gonna only be able to get one of you. And so your, your odds are pretty good. I mean, I don't wanna do that every day, but your odds are pretty good. But if you all throw stones at the lion, then you can drive it off. Well, now your odds are perfect because now that you're, you're completely defensible. It's actually way safer than one in 30 chance of dying. And so for the first time, the group needs and the individual needs coincided perfectly in our line. And so what I believe happened at that inflection point is that we started to become much more social. We became much more cooperative because it served our best interests. Now, we don't know if it happened the first time, the thousandth time, or even the millionth time that the opportunity presented itself. But somewhere along the line, there was those ancestors who had a proclivity to stand their ground and to not run away and all to work together were the ones who suddenly discovered the strategy that served us so well. And that began our social ascension to becoming a highly cooperative social being. And for a whole other set of reasons, it also led to the massive expansion of our cranium and becoming as smart as we are. And was that, do you think that was related at all to what people typically call the cognitive revolution? I know that came much later. That's more like a, that's still like a 3 million year gap, I would suppose, because the cognitive revolution, as far as I understand, is about 40,000 to 70,000 years ago. Um, was that maybe a moment where that journey that started 3 million years ago kind of came to fruition? And what kind of happened in that period of time that might have uh, caused us to maybe be more sensitive to social um, ostrac you know, ostracization, um, maybe social judgment, status, rank, um, maybe different kinds of behaviors that we evolved to uh, be sensitive to during that time. Yeah, that's the key, right? So that's really when I think all the cognitive stuff started to happen because for the first time in our line, we now have the possibility of expanding our brain, but gaining some caloric benefit by virtue of that expansion. And so, you know, any animal on this planet would benefit by being smart, right? So if, if a zebra is way smarter, it could chat with other zebras about stuff that zebras just can't talk about. You know, they don't talk at all, but uh, it could do Einstein. It could be way smarter than us. And, and if it were way smarter than us, it could outwit the lions and it would say, all right, well, let's, here's a plan. Tomorrow, when the lions come after us, you fake left, I'll fake right, we'll both, you know, and they could come up with something that's gonna work a lot better than, uh-oh, run, right? But if they get a bigger brain, they gotta be able to pay the rent on that bigger brain. They've got to be able to bring in more or higher quality food. And a zebra, as it is, spends its whole day eating grass, so it can't get more grass. It's only got hooves, it doesn't have hands, can't manipulate tools or objects. So it would be wonderful for it to be smarter, but it couldn't pay the rent to get that bigger brain. It would actually be a caloric negative rather than a positive, despite the greater safety that it would bring. But once our ancestors started working together as a group, now they could start to pay the rent on a bigger brain if they could start doing more interesting things with it. So once we work together as a group by stoning the predators that are coming after us, we could start to say, hey, let's go get dinner that way tomorrow. Let's stone some food and bring it, bring it home and eat it. The smarter you get, the more opportunities you have. And it's not long, about a million years after that, where you start to see division of labor. You get to then Homo erectus, who evolved division of labor. And that gives you an enormous advantage. Once you have division of labor, then groups have emergent properties that individuals just don't have. They're not, you know, the effectiveness of individual times X. They're effective of individuals by X squared or whatever the number might be, right? And they can start to say, okay, you wait here. I'm gonna go there, we'll chase the mammoth. It'll fall off the cliff and die. And we're gonna eat a meal that's way bigger than any of us as individually. No other animal can do that. Wolves can bring down a large animal by all jumping on it at once, but that's pretty dangerous business. We're not designed for those big dangerous projects, but we are mentally. And coincidentally, we have um, a really interesting gene in our line that appears to have popped up 
And I'm happy to talk about how that came about, how we think it came about at around that exact same point. And so if you look at our, at our cranial expansion, for the first three million years after we left the forest and our chimp cousins behind, it goes very slowly. We gained hardly anything. But after that three million years, it really takes off. So I think in answer to your question, the cognitive revolution is definitely something we see in Homo sapiens within the last 100,000 years. Of course, that's where we have the best data. But it all really probably started there on the savanna, the day that those Australopithecines realized, boy, if we band together and throw stones all at once, we can drive off even the biggest predators. Yeah, I'd love to hear more about this gene. Um, when, when did it arrive and what, what are we thinking that the gene does in terms of influencing or how it's expressed? So the, one of the ways that evolution often works is by accidental duplication. So in, in when, when the um, DNA is splitting and, and, and reforming, you know, in, in meiosis, sexual reproduction, or any of the, or mutation, any of a variety of places, the, the, um, and, and I'm not a biologist, so I could be butchering this, but basically what often happens is, I believe through RNA processes, but I could be completely wrong, a gene accidentally duplicates itself on the genome. Now, however that comes about, Ask, you ask a proper scientist for that, but however that comes about, what you've got now is a really great situation because a gene has duplicated itself. The, the gene that already exists is doing the job that it was doing before. So now it can change any way it wants or do other things that are related and without harming the organism. And in our case, somewhere around 15 million years ago, the NOTCH2NL gene appears to have accidentally duplicated on the genome. Now the NOTCH2NL gene appears, this is all pretty new, it's within the last few years, so there's lots of work to be done. But what it appears to do is cause your neurons to remain as stem cells for longer. And so when neurons are stem cells, they duplicate a lot more. And so once they stop being stem cells, then they hardly duplicate at all. They hardly regenerate themselves. It happens, but not, not at the level that happens when they're still stem cells. And so what you've got is now around 15-ish million years ago, I can't remember the exact date, this gene duplicates itself and then just sits silent on the genome for about 10 million years until it runs into our Australopithecine ancestors, when it then duplicates itself again and it turns on. Now, why would it turn on right at the most propitious time? Well, it probably didn't. It probably turned on thousands of times in between, but every time it turned on in the past, that gene was more expensive than it was benefit. So it was all cost and very little yield to be the super smart chimp and you know, you're still doing chimpish things, you're still competing with the other chimps and, and you're get, the only gain is individual and you've got to pay the price on that bigger brain with more calories. So it's probably at best a neutral and more than likely a cost. But now when it happens to do it again, right when they could use it, when Australopithecines are working together, now you see cranial expansion just take off over the next three million years. So prior to that event, three million years in the savannah had gained us about 75 grams of brain power. We'd gone from about a 380 gram brain as a chimp to about a 450 gram brain as an Australopithecus. And then we go in the next million and a half years, we, we more than double in size to a 960 gram brain as a Homo erectus. And then in the next million and a half years from them, we add another chimp brain on top of that to about 1350 grams, which is what you and I are sitting with today. And, and what assuredly happened during that time is all sorts of key innovations and key changes in our behavior one of which was fire, bringing in higher quality food, protecting ourselves better, et cetera. But a number of those events allowed us to keep growing a bigger and bigger brain, which kept bringing in more and more benefits with it. Is I, I know that there's some, I guess I shouldn't say I know, I've heard that there is some uh, concerns about the role that the size of the hips played in keeping a brain smaller for a premature birth so that there was a longer learning period. Um, is, is that still something that is credited that 
from what you've there's seen? No, there's no question that the birth, that the narrow birth canal, narrow comparatively speaking, matters. I watched my children being born and it's you're like pretty blown away that a woman can get that thing through. It doesn't look easy. I don't want to do it myself. <laughs> and, and that definitely matters. But Robert Sapolsky has made a really interesting argument. I mean, I'm not sure if he's the first to make this argument, but that's the first time I encountered it in his book, Behave, where he points out that, you know, our, think about it this way. We've got a few billion base pairs on our entire genome, right? But we've got billions of neurons and trillion or trillions of connections. So even if our entire genome were dedicated to wiring our brain, it couldn't do the job. There's just there's too many connections that it has to wire with too little information to start with. And so what Sapolsky points out is that by, yeah, the birth canal definitely wants you to push that baby out earlier before the brain gets bigger, but you actually want the brain to be connecting to itself when it's experiencing the world. You don't want it to be connecting to itself when it's inside and there's nothing going on. And so the brain actually probably co-evolved with that problem. We might've come up with a different solution to it, but it co-evolved with that problem that it's really good for us to be born completely hopeless and completely dependent because then we can just sit there in this world with this buzzing confusion and we can allow the regularities in our environment to wire our brain for us. Now, this only happens at the cortical level, level at the subcortical level. You know, you've got your older brain, so to speak, which is subcortical. And then on top of it, you've got this big cortex, which is like a newspaper that's been crumpled up and shoved in there. So it's all wibbly wobbly. So lots of surface area, but it's crammed into a smaller space. That cortex, the wiring of that cortex is random. You barely know anything about how two neurons are going to be connected by their proximity to each other. Whereas if you look subcortically, depending on where you are, you know a lot about who's talking to whom as a function of proximity. And what that tells you is that, yes, narrow hips meant that we had to come out pretty pre, premature, pretty half-baked. But it's, it's actually in our best interest to do that because then our genes don't have to regulate the way our brain forms its neuronal connections. That can be regulated by our interactions with the environment. Which, yeah, definitely makes sense, right? Because we want our brain to create its expectations of the world based on actual stimuli, stimuli that it's going to mm -hmm. encounter. So maybe that's a good point where we can maybe jump this conversation forward in time a little bit. You know, since that time period where we were developing those social evolutionary behaviors, we've went through the agricultural revolution, through the industrial revolution, and now we're in the technological revolution. That's a very major change in environments. And I, I can't remember how the line goes exactly, but it's like, it's almost pointless to talk about behavior unless you're talking about how genes are expressed uh, in relationship to their environment. So given all that work that you've, done and the, the behaviors that you've seen evolve, you know, in our ancestral environment, what are some of the ways that you are seeing it change maybe as a result of either the agricultural revolution, the industrial or the technological? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and there's two key parts to the answer. One is that we evolved to be cultural animals. And so what makes us, it's had such an enormous advantage over all the other animals in this planet is our incredible communicative capacity. And so every other animal, when it's born, it has to now learn the world starting at ground zero. And when it dies, it's learned a lot and everything it learned dies with it. And it starts over again. The next generation starts at ground zero for whatever that animal is. A couple of inborn bits of knowledge and then you got to learn everything else. And there's no one there to teach you. We have such extraordinary cognitive capacity blended with such extraordinary communicative capacity that 
um, we can communicate to each other and culture ratchets itself, it scaffolds on itself. And the, the, the clearest example that I know of is if you look at what only the geniuses knew a few generations ago, Copernicus figures out that we're not the center of the universe. Darwin figures out that evolution is how we got here. Nobody knew that before them. Now you learn that in primary school. Every kid knows that. And so it's this extraordinary process of learning and ratcheting up and, and working through the world in an amazing way. You and I don't know how any of the devices work at any real level that sit between us, and yet we're talking to each other from thousands of miles apart. We don't need to know because other humans know. And so the, what that tells you is that despite our brain being an enormously impressive device, single individual humans by themselves are not that impressive. And the example I always give is, how would you feel if I told you I was gonna drop you in the forest naked and alone in some tropical rainforest? You'd be like scared, uh-oh, I'm going to die. I'm going to be animal food, right? But if I told you I'm gonna take 100 of you and drop you naked in the rainforest, you'd say, wow, that sounds like a party, A. And B, even though none of us, we're, we're, we're techies or we're humanists or we're whatever we are, we don't know how to survive in a rainforest, I'm not even scared anymore. I know that we're gonna make a plan and we're gonna figure it out. And between all of us together, we're gonna to, we're going to be the new top predator in that section of woods. And so what that tells you is that human connecting to each other is mission critical and we evolved to do that. And, and so what that allows us to be is a generalist who becomes a specialist in every single environment on this planet. And so every other animal has had to evolve its own specialization because specialization usually wins. And so that means you eat the certain fruit and you pollinate the certain flower and you have this deal with the tree or the plant or you've lived this complicated intertwined life. And we can do that too everywhere on this planet with different rules about what we eat, different rules about how we live, but we figure them out as we go. And so what that tells you is that yeah, there's a lot of evolutionary mismatches that now exist in our modern world where we evolved to live uh, in this Pleistocene savanna environment and we don't live there anymore. But fortunately for us, we also evolved to be generalists who are capable of becoming specialists in any environment. And so there, there are things that cause us problems. Um, happy to talk about that if you want, but really what's happening now is the pace of technology, the pace of cultural change is what drives us to be who we are, they're winners and losers in every one of those changes, right? And sometimes those losers never get to catch up, like society forgets about them, but they got a raw deal. When, imagine you're a, you know, a heavy truck hauler and now there's self-driving heavy trucks. Well, that was your job. You might have other skills and it might be hard to upskill at this point in your life. There's a lot, that happens a lot. It keeps happening throughout human history. And so there's, there's a lot of you know, breaking of eggs to make this particular omelet and it's an ongoing process but society itself does incredibly well every time. And so if you look at sort of the first Luddites, so to speak, who are destroying machinery because it's putting people out of work, and you look at the life they lived compared to the life we live now, everything's cheaper. There's far fewer, you know, it used to be 90% of humans were farmers and 10% got to do something else. Now it's far more than 90% are doing something else and we're benefiting from those wonderful 10% who are doing all the growing and allowing people to do all the different kinds of things they want to do. So we're, we're very fortunate that we live in the exact time and the exact place that we do, even though it's a super intimidating place. I, I agree with all of that. Um, one thing that makes me think of is your discussion around social innovation, um, particularly how, you know, most people aren't, well, let me rephrase that. Most of us have the capacity to be really genius innovators, but most of us don't do it for many reasons. One of which is that you say we just prefer to socialize in a lot of instances and we don't even think about the technical solution because we prefer the social um, uh, aspect. How does that kind of cultural shift maybe tie into 
uh, social innovation as like our, our niche and maybe you can just explain social innovation itself sure. a bit more. Sure. So the, if you look at the history of humanity, um, the, what separates us from our chimp cousins is all this technical innovation, the conversation you and I are having at a distance, the warm climate controlled room I live in, the sunshade shirt that I own, you know, all those kinds of things, right? But it turns out that most humans never innovate anything. When they do the surveys and they call you on the phone and they say, have you modified any product or, or invented anything new in the last three years? And they then try to find out what it was. They, the highest they ever get is about 6% have done it once in three years. I actually think that's an overestimate. I've never made anything worthwhile in my life. And I don't, none of my friends have either, right? Um, but obviously I don't hang out with techie types. And so maybe they would think it's an underestimate because they're constantly making new things. And so then the question is, well, why is it that the single most defining species of our, or defining quality of our species, our innovativeness, our technical innovation, why is it actually so rare? And, and in answer to that question, what I believe is the answer. So my colleague Thomas Sudendorf and I have proposed that what's going on there is that we actually evolved to innovate socially. We evolved to work together and to figure out social solutions to problems. And that's actually our preference. Now, the, the problem is that a social solution can block a technical one. So if you just automatically think about the world in social ways, then you can fail to think about a really obvious technical solution to your problem. And the, advantage, the example I always use, because it's so amusing, how, just how stupid I was, and everybody else for that matter, it's not just me, is there didn't used to be wheels on suitcases until the 1980s. And so we would travel around with these really heavy suitcases that had no wheels on them. And then we'd pay somebody to put it on their wheeled cart and roll it the last 100 meters to the counter because we just couldn't carry it with all the suitcases we had once we get out of the car. And I never once thought, boy, Bill, you could make a fortune if you redesigned a suitcase to put wheels on it. All I thought was, who could I talk into going to the airport with me to help me carry my suitcases across the, the hall because I don't really have extra money to be paying a porter. There goes the pizza, right? And so once they put wheels on the suitcase, the second I saw that, of course, now I, I have to have that. I must buy myself a new suitcase. But, but it's so obvious and so simple. Why didn't we think of it? Because we weren't focused on that aspect of the problem. So the question is, who is focused on that aspect of the problem? And what the data suggests is that people who tend to be more out on the autism spectrum. And the reason for that is they're less socially inclined. So if they're less engaged with, with others socially, then they more, they're more likely to look at the problems and think, well, how can I solve that myself? And what that typically means is, well, what can I do to change the world? What can I do to make it technically more suitable to me? And if you, you, know, if you look at Silicon Valley, if you look at the big companies that have changed the world, I would hypothesize that there's a lot of Aspie people working in those companies. They're brilliant, but they're on the spectrum somewhere. And, and being on the spectrum has actually behooved them in this case because it's made them more technically oriented. And those technical skills then, because the rest of us are so social and because they see, oh boy, if I spread this idea, it'll be very lucrative for me. We all connect together and boom, off go those ideas. And so I think that every human, not every human, most humans could innovate new project, new products. But almost none of us do because it just doesn't, it, we're, we're devoting our intelligence and our creativity elsewhere. Do you think that that's changing in a world of, of social media and online interaction? Like, how do you think this new paradigm of you find your mates online, um, you know, you use emoticons instead of emotions, you sit at home and stare through a screen instead of staring, staring into their eyes and reading body language. How, how is that shifting some of the ways that those genes and evolved behaviors express themselves for us as a species. And that, I'm totally speculating. I, I don't know at all. But what I would say is that we do know that when, if you and I were in person, staring at each other face to face, 
and we're friendly and we're having a good conversation, which is all happening, we would start to synchronize our behaviors in a very interesting way at a low level by the way we move our hand. And if I lean back, you'd be more likely to lean back and vice versa. But we'd even start to synchronize our pupil dilation. And so what happens when two humans get together is they become simpatico with each other and mirror neurons may play a big role. I'm not totally sure exactly what's going on here, but there's even some decent evidence that neurologically we'd synchronize. What we don't yet know is how well does that work over Zoom or any Skype, any other platform, right? The, it may work once we get the internet working well enough. It may work basically perfectly. Like, you know, we didn't evolve to see two-dimensional pictures. So I don't feel like I'm looking at you and you're flat. I feel like I'm looking at you and your person, right? And even though you're only that big to my eyeball, I don't feel like you're a miniature person, right? And all that, our mind just solves that problem instantly. And so it may well be that if you get the technology good enough, that actually you mirror most of those synchrony effects that really matter beyond the kind of fact that we also evolved a desire for touch. We also evolved desire to connect to each other. When humans do touch, there's oxytocin release if it's friendly touch, hugs and all that kind of stuff. And those oxytocin releases play an important role in friendship and in romantic relationships and in parental relationships, family relationships. So it would be in my mind, probably bad if we ended up always being e-connected to each other and never ever got a chance to physically interact but maybe we would evolve so that those humans who were better at connecting over the video screen were the dominant ones and formed more relationships and shipped off their sperm and egg and had more babies. I mean, who knows, right? Those kinds of things are very hard to predict. Are, are you seeing ways in which it might be more specifically maladaptive? Hopefully that's not this, quite the same question, but are there specific like maladaptive uh, occurrences that you're, you're concerned about or maybe seen because of the shift from ancestral environment to technological technology environment well this covid one is bad for lots of people anxiety is up depression is up um this is a we're on zoom it's a great mechanism for the kind of conversation we're having but it's not so good to go meet people because a bunch of squares on my screen how do i talk to the square i want to talk to um my um, niece and nephew actually have started a new company called Toucan, where they're actually trying to make it more like a, just a friendly environment. And it's a really lovely idea. I'm sure there's probably quite a few out there where people are trying to do that. How can we go forward in the world that we now live and make, a, um, make an environment that actually is more conducive to natural conversations and relationships? And in their case, they've done this wonderful job. It's still on a screen, of course, but it's like you can move in and out of conversations. You can have messaging to people that they do and don't see. I mean, imagine that you and I are at a party and imagine I don't really want to talk to you. So we're in Zoom and there's four of us. How do I pretend to talk to you, but really try to talk to that other guy? In, in a party, I could do it. I could find my moment to escape or I could bring the other person in and get a joke from them. I could say, hey, I'm going to go grab some punch and then never reappear to you. There's lots of strategies I could use without being rude. But on Zoom, it's hard, right? And so, because this platform wasn't designed for that. And so as we go forward to the degree that we retain the positive qualities of these e-relationships and e-interactions, I think you're gonna see a proliferation of platforms that serve different kinds of purposes. But um, secondarily, there's also likely to be costs. And, and one of those costs I, may be unavoidable, at least for the time being, which is this sort of increase in desire to be with people. And, and even if people don't know that's what the problem is, the increase in anxiety and depression and things like that which right now is bad. I mean, we here in Australia are super lucky where there's basically no COVID anymore because of the strict lockdown and we're, you know, we're surrounded by ocean. So it's easy to control our environment. You, if you come here, you go into quarantine. You can't just come to Australia. It's hard to come at all. Um, but in America, it's, it's not so easy to do. And so 
you know, it's, you guys are much more in a lockdown situation and therefore much more relying on these e-forms of, of communication and seeing, therefore, the more negative sides of it. Yeah, have you done much research or study into the effects of, like, status uh, and rank, like, in social circumstances, like how that affects cognition? Well, status is a super important, the power that a person has is a super important quality. And I don't know if it differs in any meaningful way over e-communication versus non-e-communication, but the higher power you are, the more disinhibited you can be, the more everybody's curious. Like if I hold power over you, if I can determine your race, if I can determine who you get to marry, and, or if I even just determine where you eat dinner tonight, you need to understand what I'm thinking, right? That becomes super important to you. What's up, what am I going to eat tonight? That's up to Bill. What's Bill thinking? Is he looking pizza-like or is he looking, you know, taco night? And so suddenly you care a lot what I'm thinking. Whereas if I have no power over you and I don't influence what you have for dinner tonight, you may not care at all what I'm thinking. And so we know all sorts of effects where attention gets aimed at people with power, even just for selfish reasons. I want to know what's going to happen to me. So I need to understand this person's mind. Now, the one thing that we know, and this separates us from all the other animals to the best of our ability, is all humans want to share the contents of their mind all the time. But I become particularly interested in the contents of your mind when you hold power over me, because now I can predict my future. And maybe I can even nudge your mind in a little bit in the direction that I want to go. Like I want it to be taco night. And so I can drop Mexican themes into our conversation and hope that you pick it, right? Uh, and so things like power matter a lot in the way humans interact and whether that proves to be end up showing different effects by virtue of the e-environment or not, we don't know yet. Yeah, just one of the personal kind of questions, I guess, that I've been wondering about lately is the role of having um, like these permanent objective counters that kind of tell us how many likes and follows and what our community looks like and having that as an act like constant reminder in the digital space. Whereas I would think in an ancestral environment, you know, we might have a more like ephemeral or nebulous understanding of our role. Like we might be like, yeah, I'm not the highest rank, but I'm not the lowest rank either. And I don't really think about it all that often because I don't have a reason to. But now in this modern environment, it's like you wake up, you immediately see your profile with all exactly your like social stats in a permanent objective everyone sees it form and i'm i can't help but wonder if that's like that just that constant reminder that's a habitual you know stimuli for our brain to consider yeah. that it seems that's profound. a great example it's a great example of an enormous mismatch between where how we lived in the past and how we live now so to, to use your example you and i are hunting gathers a hundred thousand years ago and there's 27 of us in our group and it'll come and go as people leave it and, and join it but that's about where we stand i know them all and you know them all and you're just a better hunter than i am i wish i were better but you you're better at it than i am but probably i'm better than you at something and probably it's something matters. Maybe I'm better at making arrows. And so, you know, you're really useful to our group and I really admire you and I wish I could hunt like you do, but you need me too. And so you like the fit, you're like, hey, Bill, man, I could really use another one of those arrows you made the other day. And I'm like, no worries, mate. Thanks for that piece of giraffe. Here you go, right? And so everybody could be the best at something or at least be really useful in some way in a group of that size. And so we evolved to want to be more benefit than we are cost to our group. Because the day that you guys all decide Bill costs more than he's bringing in, I wake up and I'm the only one there because you guys have left or I never wake up again at all, right? It's too costly to live in that world to have somebody who's only cost and not benefit. It's someone who's only consuming resources and not providing them. And so we evolved this strong need to be benefiting our group and to be valued by the group. And the way we 
the way we evaluate where we stand is do they like me, right? If Bill stops bringing in the bacon, people just stop liking him. They stop talking to him. And so do people like me? Do they respond positively? Is, is my little barometer, my sociometer in Mark Leary and Roy Baumeister's terms about how I'm doing. And as you point out, now I've got all sorts of numerical indicators of that, which is bad thing number one. Now it's, it's very quantified. And bad thing number two is there's a bazillion other humans out there. And some of them have way more followers than I do. And some of them have way more likes than I do. And so in a group of 27, I could be the best arrow maker. But I could never be the best arrow maker on the planet, much less in my city. And so the psychology that, that saw us to try to find our niche and to try to find a way to contribute to it also saw us trying to be the best. Because um, we're engaged in this status competition all the time, comparing each other, not just so that we know that we're valued by our group, but also so the girl will pick me. Now, I know she's going to pick you if she wants a better hunter, but she might pick me if she really cares about the quality of her arrows, right? I've got a reason to be picked. But if I've got no reason to be picked because somebody else better hunter, somebody else better arrow maker, somebody's better at everything, and that's the modern world we live in. Nobody is the best at anything except for one fleeting moment. You're the richest or the strongest or the fastest, and then it's gone. But the rest, the, the other 9 billion, 7 billion of us, we don't get to be that ever. And so social media rubs our nose in that in a very bad way. And that, that kind of social comparison process where we come out not high in the hierarchy, but low in the hierarchy is very bad for happiness. So yes, it's a, it's a real example of a mismatch that our ancestors didn't have to suffer through because they didn't get likes on their Facebook page. Now there's huge benefits to Facebook. There always are benefits to any of these new forms of technology, but there's almost nothing that comes without cost. And in this particular case, I think that quantification with the large number of humans that's out there is a real cost. Yeah, you, you know, the, the subtitle of your book is of who we are where we came from but also what makes us happy and we're talking a lot about anxiety and anxiety and depression here and you know you, it feels like your motto is generally we learn how to move forward by looking back are there are there lessons from looking back that you think we can use moving forward to help assuage some of that anxiety to help make us happier like are are there specific are there specific things you feel that we can keep in mind or do to use these lessons from the past as we move forward? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I do think there are, if you think about happiness, it's an, it's an emotion that evolved to serve a evolutionary purpose. It evolved because those people who got happy when they did things that were in their genes, best interest, passed on that proclivity to more people than those people who got happy by doing things that weren't in their genes, best interest. So we're all happy when we eat a delicious meal. None of us, almost none of us are happy if we eat dog feces because dog feces are bad for us and they lower our probability of survival. A delicious meal is full of nutrients and fats and sugars that give us a better chance of surviving. Now, unfortunately, in that particular case, we live in a world where there's too much of that. And so that proclivity to want to eat uh, foods that are full of fat, sugar, and salt is now a bad thing unless we can control it. So again, costs and benefits of everything. But, but yes, if you look to our ancestral environment, you can see a few key things. We're, we're pair bonding species. And the reason we're pair bonding is because it takes a lot of effort to raise our young, as we talked about earlier. And so what that means is that a, a newborn baby's got a much better chance of surviving if both a mom and a dad are providing resources to it and preferably other family members as well. So we form strong family units. And that means that we evolved a proclivity to find joy in our family. 
And so we can look to that and say, well, I, I should try to, not all, some families are very dysfunctional, they're hard to find joy in, but you can start your own family as well, right? It doesn't just have to be the natal family in which you were born, your biological family. And, and so that's a big part of it. We evolved to pair bonds to raise those kids. And so again, that tells you forming long-term romantic relationships is really good for your happiness. But if you rewind the tape to when we are talking about osteopithecines on the, on the um, Savannah, they started this process of evolving to cooperate. And what that tells you is that, you know, you're going to get great satisfaction in your life if you can cooperate with other humans to solve problems that you think are important and worth solving. And they may only be problems at work. How can I feed enough people tacos during the day, right? But that's a really important problem if you work in a taco shop. And so it's not, I'm not saying that you're making the world a better place. I'm saying you're solving the local problem that you're confronted with. And so what that means is that if you can find whatever you like to do the most, and, and people often say, find your passion. And I try to avoid saying that because so many people struggle to find their passion, right? It's not easy to know what, what you're best at and what you're going to enjoy the most, but that doesn't matter. All you have to do is find something you're good at and enjoy for now. And if you can find that, and then you can find a way to, to work with others to do it better, to in some cooperative way, solve problems. And it doesn't have to be at work. It could be in other contexts of your life. That's going to make you happy. You're going to go home without even knowing it, but feel like you've, you've achieved something meaningful, that a day's work's been done because you and other humans work together and achieve something. And that's what we evolved to do. Could you maybe expand upon that a little bit with your Good Samaritan example? I forget which one of your graduate students uh, it was who worked on that, but I'm, I'm pretty sure they had to go down a hallway where they had a chance to help somebody um, to the point where that person was actually like in the hallway and they had to step over them. Um, and depending on how rushed or um, not that person was would depend on whether they helped. And one thing I thought particularly interesting about that, being working you know, here at Singularity University where our focus is on the future, the singularity, you know, the, this moment of like true technological revolution, you talk about the fact that we can get really blinded to the present issues because of our, our future obsession. Um, I'm wondering if you could just maybe unpack that and expand yeah, upon sure. that a bit. Sure. So one of the most important weapons that evolution gave us is that the capacity of this large brain of ours to simulate the future. Um, other animals can't do that. And, and my, and by simulate the future, I don't mean just think, oh, what's about to happen next, but actually imagine contrary futures, mutually contradictory futures. And so my favorite example of experiment from that is my colleagues, um, John Redshaw and Thomas Sudendorf invented this amazing experiment where they have this basic Y tube. It's a long straight line, and then it splits in two directions. And they drop a grape down it or some preferred food, and they do it with chimps or little kids. And all that they want to do is see what does the animal do to catch the grape or the preferred food. Now you can look at that and go, oh, I can't tell for certain which side the grape's going to go on. It'll go left or it'll go right. And you know, it's going to be 50-50. But if I let you, you use both hands, if I don't tie one hand behind your back, you're, you know you're going to get the grape every time. It's not rocket science, right? Apes can't do that. And neither can little kids. Not until they're, I think it was around three or four, they can reliably do it. And what's so amazing is sometimes they'll put both hands out and then they'll catch it with one hand and they'll go back to just using that one hand. They don't understand that there was this mutually contradictory futures that they could not simulate and therefore it was gonna be one or the other. They could say, well, I'm not sure which it'll be, I'll go for that one. They couldn't say, I can guarantee that no matter which one it is, I'll take both, right? And so we have that capacity. And then of course that moves on to be able to do all sorts of amazing things because now rather than just 
say, well, I'm going to dive in there and try to win this fight, or I'm going to try to solve this problem. We can sit back and reflect on it for as long as we possibly want to, right? We could reflect on it for days, weeks, months, or years, and then say, now I know the answer. I've simulated 900 possible ways I could do it. And once I didn't get my face beat in once, and now I'm going to go in there and I'm going to beat you up because I know the way to do it, right? So I, I don't suffer at all. I just bide my time till I've got the perfect plan in place. And that's either for conflict or hopefully not for friendship or making the world a better place or whatever. But what all that means is that this, this enormously beneficial piece of turf right here gets us to start living in the future all the time because it works so well. And so it's really hard for us to snap back to the here and now, but the here and now is very important for happiness. And the example experiment you gave, I wish it were my own. It's a very famous experiment run by um, John Darley and Dan Batson. And what they did is they, they were at Princeton. And so they had seminary students come in who were learning, you know, who wanted to either be priests or study religion. And they told them, oh, here's what we need you to do. We need you to go give a lecture on the Good Samaritan. And you're either ahead of schedule, you're right on schedule, you're running behind schedule. They told them that. So off you go to that other building and give your lecture. So now they're walking off and they're all, their mind is caught up on the lecture they have to give about how you should stop and help somebody who's in need, because that's the parable of the Good Samaritan. And when they walk outside their building, there's this person clearly in need of help rolling around on the ground moaning. And some of them, as you say, step right over him on the way to tell other humans why they should always stop to help. And the more they were caught up thinking about the future because they're running a little bit behind schedule, oh, I got to get there, the more likely they were to do that. Now, all of them were likely to do that. Even when they were ahead of schedule, something like a third to a half stepped right past this guy who they ought to be helping in order to lecture others on how you ought to help. And now what that's telling you is that we get caught up in the future and don't even notice the present. My, my favorite example of that is this amazing Washington Post demonstration they did where Joshua Bell, they came, he came to Washington, D.C. to to put on a concert. He's a, a, an amazing soloist on the violin. And they had him and his $3 million Stradivarius in the Metro in Washington playing this amazing music. And they just wanted to see how many people would stop and listen. Well, they did it on the way into work when everybody's going in, thinking about what they got to get solved that day. And out of over a thousand people who walked past them, only seven stopped to even listen for a minute to one of the world's greatest violinists busking for free when you're gonna pay a fortune to watch him as part of the symphony several nights from now. And so it's this great capacity that we have, but it's a costly capacity to our happiness because it can make us not even notice the present. We just get caught up in the future. And so lots of great opportunities to solve your problem can go unnoticed when you're busy trying to solve that very same problem because your mind is elsewhere. Is that something that um, you've seen impacted by stress? Like, have you done much work in terms of how stress affects um, our proclivity to maybe be pro-social or anti-social? Um, or maybe, well, for instance, I know, I, um, it's my understanding that the amygdala has kind of a antagonistic relationship with the prefrontal cortex. And the prefrontal cortex often, you know, is where we process these kind of critical thoughts and our, our narratives and we maybe have these um, linguistic abilities to process a moment more more um, abstractly. If we are really stressed out though, you kind of, I feel like you would lose that ability to kind of catch yourself in a moment where you could be doing something more intelligently. Is that is that a yeah. relationship you've that's, explored? That's, yeah, I, I haven't done any work on that, but there's lots of great work on that problem. Actually, we're doing a little bit of it now. We're collaborating with Whoop, this um, biometric capture company. And so we're looking at stress among executives. And we've done some really interesting, fun work with that, because we can monitor heart rate and stress in real time. Um, the, um, but basically, if you look at the, the literature in general, what it shows is exactly what you're saying, that 
um, as people get more stressed out, their attentional focus narrows. Now there's also other bodily consequences of that. And so we see in our research with, with Whoop and actually with McKinsey here in Australia, that um, these executives who are under these high stress circumstances, the next day their frontal lobes aren't working as well. So you have a really stressful day yesterday and now we give you a frontal lobe task where for example, I keep telling you words over and over and you have to remember a word two ago or three ago or four ago. That's this like mental explosion task. And they don't do as well on it if yesterday was a stressful day, but they do better on it if they got lots of slow wave sleep last night. So this device is really giving us some fun windows into these things. But we have to remember, well, stress evolved for, you know, we evolved our stress response in a very sensible way because our stresses were short term. I'm being chased by a saber tooth tiger. This is not the time for me to go, huh, I wonder what the best way to solve this problem really is. It's just like, go legs, go, right? And so we we evolved in an environment where stresses were short term, where you human beings have this amazing capacity to be both deliberative and implementative. And so when you're deliberating, you're trying to decide what you're gonna do. And we're really open-minded during that phase. But then once you implement, you're doing. Well, it's not the time to deliberate when the saber tooth is running at you. You make a very quick, fight or flight decision, and then you're implementing. And once you're implementing, you want to have this closed focus. And my favorite example of that is if you ever watch these um, uh, nature shows with a cheetah, it's doing the deliberative thing when it's picking which gazelle it wants to eat. And it's like, okay, I want to eat you. And then it goes after that animal. It's chosen it based on proximity and seeming how fast it is, et cetera. Well, now sometimes it'll be running after in this like tunnel vision and you'll see this gazelle right next to suddenly realize there's a cheetah right next to me. And the gazelle's like, ah, and it just peels off in the other direction. Well, the cheetah doesn't care. It's evolved to stay focused in this implementation phase on the animal's pick, because if it chases that one, and then that one, and then that one, it's gonna run out of steam and not catch anybody. Now there's a cost every once in a while, well, it should have grabbed the one that was right next to it. It should have broken out of that mindset, but that's a that benefit would happen less than it would be costly. And so what we see is the exact same thing with stress. On average, it's beneficial for us to narrow our attentional focus and to be just dealing with this very immediate problem that we have. But that's a terrible idea when you live in a modern world where stress is a long-term, where we don't bash something or run away from it, where our solutions to these problems don't fit anymore the way we're trying to work on them. And so the stress system that made perfect sense for this implementation phase of trying to design deal with this really acute, important stressor that would be gone in five minutes makes no sense at all when you're trying to deal with the long-term stressor of, you know, cardiac care, or my boss doesn't like me, or, you know, you name it. There's a long list of things that tunnel vision only hurts. Absolutely. That makes me think a, a perfect segue, maybe looking at executives and stress. Um, you know, we deal with a lot of organizations and executives at SU. And one of the things you mentioned in your book is two different leadership styles and, and how that could be brought into the organizational realm. I believe it's uh, either the baboon or the elephant. Uh, could you could you talk about what those two different styles of leadership look like? Sure. So remember, human beings evolved away from chimpanzees who are very hierarchical and very selfish, not cooperative. And then we had this moment where suddenly cooperation really benefited us and we shifted dramatically, it became much more collectivist and cooperative. We evolved this proclivity and ability for collective action. And so what that means is that inside us, we have both a strong group orientation, but also a strong individualistic orientation that did not go away. It just had this new layer put on top of it. And so what that means is that you, in all sorts of activities in life, we're gonna see people being groupy and cooperative and helpful, and we're gonna see them being selfish and jerks. That's just universal. But 
the thing that brings that out the most is as you become a leader. Because once you become a leader of your group, now you have all sorts of opportunities to really help people. So your groupy side can really manifest itself and do a great thing. But you've also got these great opportunities to help yourself, right? I can be the leader of this group. I can get all the females to be attracted to me. I can take all the goods, all the pay raises, you know, whatever it might be, I can get all those things for myself. And so I call these elephant and baboon leadership styles because elephants, the leaders are these um, old females and they don't benefit in any way from their leadership. There's no way to get extra food because all elephants eat everything that holds still, right? They just eat all day because they have to, to maintain that massive bulk and it's just plant life. And her job is really just to call the group, the group of females and young males together whenever there's a threat. So she gains nothing by being leader other than doing a good job because that way nobody gets eaten and everybody else benefits in that same way. So they're totally group serving. Baboons are the opposite end of the spectrum. The male who rises to the top of the hierarchy, which he does by fighting, females leave their group and so they have to fight their way to the top. Females are born into their group and so they inherit the status of their mother. He has to fight his way to the top of these enormous canines and all he really cares once he gets there is benefiting himself. So the fertile females that he likes, he monopolizes their attention. He won't let any other males near them. If there's a really good food that they get they're omnivorous. If they get a high calorie meat food, he'll, he'll take it. If there's a nice shady rest spot, he'll take it. And so they're totally self-serving. And human beings fall somewhere in between. Some of us are more elephant-like just in personality. Some of us are more baboon-like in personality. But in my mind, the more important effect is that the more unequal the environment is, the greater the inequality in any one setting, the more likely you are to shift to a baboon mentality. Because if there's lots of great things to be had, and if you don't have those, you've got nothing, well, there's a lot to be gained by selfishness. And then as you become a leader, you're going to be doing everything you can to benefit yourself and, and your immediate family. You're going to be very baboon-like, very self-serving. But if you live in a highly equal environment, your tendency is going to be to be elephant-like because there's not much to gain by being so selfish. And there's a lot to lose. Nobody likes me as much anymore. And I don't want to suffer not being liked. I'd, I'd rather everybody likes me. So if I can if the goods spread evenly naturally, that's what I'm gonna to tend to do. And we know in our hunter-gatherer ancestors, that's how they tend to live, very flat hierarchy. And so leaders tend not to throw their weight around. But once you can got agriculture, you can store food, once you can make a lot of money, now you can you have much more possibility to develop these baboony leaders. Yeah, and that flat hierarchy seems like it would cause less stress and then therefore you would get those better thought processes that we talked about before. So it seems like the elephant is what we would usually desire more than the baboon. Yes, absolutely. William, I want to thank you so much for joining us, man. That was a really fantastic, succinct exploration from 6 million years ago to leadership of the modern day. Um, before we go, I'd like to give you the chance if there's anything you're working on right now that you'd like to tell people about, um, maybe where to find your book, any anything at all, uh, please feel free. Of course. Um, so my book, fortunately, is available. It's on it's Social Leap. It's on Amazon. It's on... Um, it, you can get as an audible. It's in all those different kinds of any place that you would want to buy a book. Fortunately, they've done a great job. HarperCollins is a wonderful publisher and I've really enjoyed working with them. So it's out there in all sorts of formats. The, um, uh, what we're working on now is trying to explore a lot of the ideas that we talk about in that book. So we're super excited to be having the time to now go back into the lab and test some of them. And as I said before, some of that work we can do out in the real world. We're working, doing some work with the U.S. Army, doing some work with the Australian Army, doing so. I live here in Australia now, even though, as you can tell by my accent, I didn't grow up here. And um, and then doing lots of work in the lab as well. So just it's for me as a social scientist, it's super exciting to have the time to then 
try to see which of these ideas really gain us some purchase and, and help and which of these ideas, well, they was interesting, but it didn't really pan out. Wonderful. Well, I will include some links to that in the show notes and everything so we can get people in the right direction. Uh, I want to thank you again, Bill. Totally my pleasure. It's really enjoyed chatting with you. And now we're going to take a moment for a short message about our membership for organizations, which you can find by going to su.org and clicking organizations in the menu. Singularity Group was founded upon the belief that the world's biggest problems represent the world's biggest opportunities. Our mission remains unchanged, but our methods have evolved exponentially. Today, we're opening doors around the world as a digital-first organization. We invite future-thinking companies to join Singularity Group to learn about the breadth of exponential technologies, to empower your organization with an abundance mindset, and to grow networks that can create solutions to humanity's greatest challenges. With an unprecedented year behind us and many great challenges ahead, leaders across the globe are wrestling with the future, how to embrace change, stay ahead of trends, and build sustainable businesses. We help entrepreneurial leaders better understand how exponential technologies can be applied in their companies to advance their goals for people, planet, profit, and purpose. And it all starts with the mindset, the skill set, and the network. Together, let's discuss how membership can turn you and your leaders into exponential thinkers and prepare for an abundant future for all. Together, we can impact a billion people.